Brothers and Sorors, the Imperator of the Rosicrucian Order Amorc, Ralph M. Lewis. Brothers and Sorors, I greet you from Rosicrucian Park. I would like to discuss prayer upon this occasion. War makes particularly conspicuous the paradoxical use of prayer. The peoples of the involved nations, friends and enemies alike, enter their temples of worship and solemnly pray that they might be victorious. Frequently, people of the same faith in opposing nations are praying in like manner to the same conceived God. Obviously, both peoples believe they are justified in their respective causes. Consequently, to the sincere religionist of a defeated country, it must seem that his God has forsaken him, or that at least prayer has lost its efficacy. It is this circumstance that has confused many religionists and caused many other persons to regard prayer as being contiguous to superstition. The value of prayer is directly proportionate to the manner in which it is used. Prayer in itself, as an act or a series of acts, is not infallible. Prayer consists of a number of such elements as to whom we pray, how and when we pray, and what we pray for. Unless these elements are integrated rightly, prayer must of necessity fail. However, no matter how often a prayer may not be productive of the intended results, certain beneficial results are experienced. Such is an example of using nearly all of the elements correctly, which we shall later explain. From the rational point of view, prayer is a petition. Like any kind of request, it may either be made silently or be vocative. When emotionally moved, it is instinctive to give voice to our desires. The voice has power in its utterances. The sound of the voice relieves the emotions. It suggests the invoking of the force of the desire, physically as well as mentally. In fact, it is nearly impossible to prevent a vocative response accompanying intense emotional agitation. We are inclined to cry out or speak out under such circumstances. If prayer is a petition, there must be something or someone to whom it is directed. Obviously, we do not pray to ourselves, that is, to our own mental or physical being. If we believe that we are intellectually and physically capable of executing a plan or acquiring something, we proceed entirely according to our own initiative. Prayer is, therefore, an admission of an actual or imagined self-insufficiency. This self-insufficiency causes a tendency in the individual 
to turn outward, to put dependency upon a force, agency, or source which is external to himself. Patently, our conception of this external force determines to a large degree the nature of our prayer. A primitive being with a polytheistic conception imagines a plurality of gods. To him, such gods may be resident in inanimate things as rocks, the sea, or in storm clouds. In his conception, each of such gods is distinctly productive of certain needs of man. Thus the individual has to evaluate his gods. To one he turns for health, to another for strength, to still another for support against his enemies. When man seeks to communicate with a power vaster than himself, he devises various means of gaining the attention of such a deity. For example, when men call upon a human potentate or a tribal head, it is necessary to have the potentate disposed to their ends. Consequently, they seek to propitiate him by a presentation of gifts, the gifts being whatever men consider of value. Sometimes the approach to the god is the attempt to create a favorable environment in which the deity may receive them. Thus, theurgical rites of music, song, and dance are used. In following this method of prayer, two things are observed. First, there is the belief that the deity may grant the request if he is sufficiently pleased with the acts of the petitioner. Secondly, there is no question of the motive of the petitioner. It is not a question as to whether the results of the prayer are contrary to natural law or as to whether they may work an injustice upon other mortals. The psychology in such instances is very crude. It is in reality conferring an anthropomorphic nature upon the God. In other words, God is conceived as being like mortals, possessed of vanity, easily gratified by gifts, homage, and ostentation. He is further conceived as being capable of dispensing his gifts or conferring his powers just as some earthly absolute king without regard to reason or to justice. Each man can, consequently, obtain whatever he wishes from the God if he is able to perform the proper theological rite. Men thus vie with each other to gain the secrets of how best to influence the gods. It is this kind of misconception that has encouraged priesthoods from the earliest known society. Priests were men believed to possess or to be trained in the proper way to invoke the pleasure of the gods for men's benefit. Though we speak of this practice as being primitive, yet this elementary idea has persisted down through the ages greatly to influence the dogmas and creeds of many religions extant today. A religious sect may decree a certain mode of behavior upon the part of the individual. It may decree that you must drop coins in a box, you must regularly attain certain ceremonies, you must repeat specific creeds and enter into authorized rites. If you comply, it is presumed that you have appeased God or made the proper approach, 
and that the deity will incline his will toward the fulfillment of the prayer offered. I do not need to designate the sects who encourage these practices. They are known to you, being common in your community. These people then pray in good faith and are, of course, most often disappointed in the results and frequently disillusioned as well. There is still another orthodox conception of prayer, which though it transcends the previous example, is yet quite primitive and potentially a failure. It continues to recognize a personal God as exercising an arbitrary will, but he does so for beneficial reasons. The individual confers upon his God not only the power of accomplishment, but the highest moral value of which he is able to conceive. In other words, it is believed that the God is capable of anything, but will only do that which is in accord with moral good. This type of religionist, then, will not petition his God to grant his prayer if it conflicts with or is contrary to what he conceives as morally right. He will not ask his God to strike another person dead or give him money which he should not have. However, this religionist will have no hesitancy in asking the fulfillment of a prayer which he thinks just, no matter how contrary it may be to the necessity of universal or cosmic order. He would not hesitate to ask God to stop a war which men themselves have brought on. Psychologically, to such individuals, God is believed arbitrarily to exercise his will as against the very laws and causes which he himself has established if man in good faith and with moral purpose asks it. The illogicalness of such prayer never occurs to the petitioner. He may pray for his God to stop what another religionist in equally good faith is praying to be continued. The fall weather in California affords an excellent example of such an anthropomorphic conception of God and prayer. In late September, the California prune growers are drying their fruit in the sun. An early and continued rain might prove very ruinous to their crop. Conversely, however, the cattle raisers at that time of the year are desperately in need of rain for pasturage, especially after the long, rainless California summer. A cattleman, if he were one of the religionists we have been speaking of, would pray for rain. Concomitantly, a prune grower would pray that we would not have rain. If God were to exercise arbitrary will, opposing the natural law of climatic conditions, whose prayer would he favor? Such a religionistic view places the deity in a ludicrous position and makes religion vulnerable to atheism. If the divine will could and would function arbitrarily, it would disrupt all cosmic unity. There would be no dependency whatsoever. It is because cosmic laws perform consistently and are immutable by the necessity of their nature that man has an assurance of dependability of the divine or cosmic principles. The mystic's conception and practice of prayer is not only the most productive of results, 
but it is the most logical method as well. The mystic avers that all things are possible within the divine consciousness of God, except that which would oppose the very nature of God. Since the divine mind is all things, there is nothing which can oppose it. Therefore, a negative request or petition remains nugatory. One should not expect to find, for example, darkness and light. For where there is light, there cannot be darkness. Thus the mystic does not ask for the impossible in his prayers. A mystic never asks for the setting aside of a cosmic or natural law, which he may have invoked by his own acts, whether due to malice or to ignorance. He is a firm believer in cause and effect. He realizes that to ask that a law invoked by himself be mitigated in his favor would be requesting the impossible. A mystic does not ask that there be conferred upon him special blessings. He knows that in the cosmic scheme there are no preferred mortals. Further, he is quite cognizant that everything already is or will be by the eternal law of change. There is nothing held back. In the laws of the cosmic, everything consistent thereto can eventually be brought about by the mind of man. Things are not transmitted to man. Rather, it is man that directs and assembles the cosmic powers to which he has access in order to bring them about. The mystic does not ask for a completed particular, but rather for the illumination whereby the particular may be materialized through his own efforts. Or, if, he desire, if his desire for a particular is not proper, he may ask that the desire be removed from him. Knowing the limitation of his own objective self, the mystic asks that if he cannot be shown how to satisfy his need, that he be shown how to rid himself of the false desire which causes him to think that it is necessary. The mystic thus proves that he does not insist that his purposes are infallible. He likewise indicates he wants to be certain that he does no other person an injustice by his desires through requesting something he should not. The mystic realizes that with proper understanding, many of the things we now pray for would lose their importance to us and would be shown to be insignificant and unworthy of a divine appeal. Many of the things with which we torment ourselves and regard as being so essential to our welfare are so because they have not been analyzed in the light of their broader aspect, namely their relation to the whole cosmic plan. The mystic in petitioning the cosmic turns his consciousness inward instead of directing his plea to a distant external entity or power. The cosmic is in him, the mystic realizes. It is not just in the reaches of space. He realizes further that his soul will answer his petition. The soul is of the cosmic and it will guide him to self-action. Prayer to the mystic is really a consultation between the two selves of man. 
It is an appeal from the mortal mind to the immortal mind of self within. The answer to a prayer is, the mystic knows, actually an insight into divine wisdom through proper attunement. The mystic thence is able properly to evaluate his desires and he is able to act in the light of what is cosmically right and possible. When a mystic asks for something which is not forthcoming, he experiences none of the disappointment which the religionist feels after his unfilled, or rather unfulfilled prayers. Whether or not the particulars are forthcoming, the mystic has nevertheless received an understanding which has disclosed to him the unnecessariness of his appeal. Prayer, therefore, is always satisfying to the mystic. Psychologically as well, prayer is beneficial to any man if it is mystically practiced. Prayer requires humility. It requires submission to the better side of our nature. It puts us in rapport with the more subtle impulses of our being. Prayers are usually of three kinds. There are prayers of confession, when man indicates to the God of his heart that he is contrite and admits a violation of his moral ideals. Then there are prayers of intercession. These are prayers in which man asks to be guided so as to prevent undesired effects of certain causes. There are also prayers of gratitude, like those of the Psalms, where man hails the majesty of the divine and expresses joy in realizing his own divine nature. Of these three kinds, the mystic indulges the latter, the prayer of gratitude, more frequently. In doing so, the mystic avoids the necessity of the other two. If we recognize the divine and commune periodically with self, which is of it, we acquire such personal mastery of our own being that prayers of intercession or prayers of confession are not required. The following is a prayer embodying all of the mystical elements that we have just enumerated. May the divine essence of the cosmic cleanse me of all impurities of mind and body that I may commune with the cathedral of the soul. May my mortal consciousness be so enlightened that any imperfections of my thinking may be revealed to me. And may I be given the power of will to correct them. I humbly petition that I may perceive the fullness of nature and partake thereof, ever consistent with the cosmic good. So mote it be.